Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about global product innovation in the technology industry or just how to be more innovative in your career journey, no matter what the industry, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a global product innovation executive with enterprise startup and board experience. He specializes in designing and building software products, platforms, and ecosystems at the international, governmental, Fortune 100, and startup levels. Now, my entrepreneurial-minded espresso lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is John Wolpert, a serial entrepreneur whose college major was in the humanities. Meanwhile, his entire career has been in tech innovation. He's been the co-founder and founder of countless startups in the emerging tech space, including having the distinction of founding Flywheel, the original cars-on-a-map app for taxis. He's also worked at IBM three times where he co-founded IBM Blockchain. And I am truly just scratching the surface here of everything John has done during his immensely successful 30-year career journey. His latest achievement, writing a hilarious new book entitled The Three-Butt Rule, Turning Negative Thinking into Positive Solutions. It is due out in January 2024. And if you are even slightly interested in tech or maybe one day in starting a business, this is the episode for you. John, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. I am, Andrea. Thanks. The three-butt rule is the sequel to the current book, which is the two-butt rule. You said the three-butt rule, which is a great note. You got to keep that in. You got to edit that out in post. How could I? No, that's fantastic because, uh, in fact, it teased me out. It teased me out because... The two-butt rule. The two-butt rule. Are you going to write a three-butt rule? Well, the funny thing is, uh, the point of the two-butt rule is that failure always comes on an odd-numbered butt. But that won't work. That's a one-butt. But it could if. That's two butts. But that didn't work. Three butts. 
but it could if as long as you have the wherewithal to keep adding an even numbered but you have a shot that's a fairly simplistic way of putting the book but in fact that is the point is how to turn negative thinking into positive solutions when i was growing up i'm a gen xer right so that, being a gen xer is kind of like trying to dance between two, two sumo wrestlers between the boomers and the the folks came after, but we were dominated by one butters, right? It was that negative momentum killing, but that won't work by somebody powerful who could, could put a the parent, in. It could yeah, be a parent. a parent. It could be anybody. It could be a boss. And in, in, in my day, uh, you know, you were scared of your boss. I mean, I don't think they are anymore. Now that my generation is, is in the boss seat, I'm like, wait a minute. Why, why, why isn't the new generation scared of us? We were scared of them. They're the, just uh, hiding it better. And maybe that's true. But that one but culture, I think, has led. Maybe my generation did this. We didn't like that one but culture. So we've created a no buts culture where we say we have the no buts policy police. No buts. Imagine when the Apollo 13 mission had that explosion and somebody said, hey, we could use the main engine to get them back fast if they, the guy that said and this is true. Don't do that, but that won't work. The the spaceship could explode. Imagine if somebody said, no killer phrases. That would have been terrible. And we would have lost three astronauts. Instead, they said, but that won't work. By the way, important safety tip. Uh, make sure that you already spell the word but correctly when handling it at work. Yes. And make sure you get the number correct yes. when you're talking about your guest's new book. That it's not the three but, it's the two but. I mean, honestly, how humiliating that I got the friggin' title of your book wrong, John. But it led to a really good conversation. There you go. Well, I think our audience will be the ultimate decider, but hopefully they appreciate that. I want to let you know, I have a confession to make. Tech. And especially what you've done, kind of designing and building out software products and platforms and ecosystems, is very much out of my comfort zone. I am going to apologize right now for any really basic questions that I make you secretly want to roll your eyes at because you're like, how can you not know what this is, Andrea? But I am not afraid, clearly, to make an ass of myself. So in the spirit of hoping to educate those in our listening audience who also may not be as well-versed in the blockchain crypto world and God, the, the Web3 Web, is that what it's called? Oh, gosh. Web3, all that stuff. Web3, um, all I, that. I'm like, uh, what the fuck is that? I know I've heard of it, but I honestly, if my life were depending on it and I had to spit out the answer, I wouldn't know. I so absolutely love that you ended up spending the vast majority of your career in the tech space, and yet you weren't a comp sci major. You weren't an engineering major. You weren't a quantum physics major. You went to Berkeley after you explained to me you started off at Carnegie Mellon as a theater major and transferred in 1984 to, to yeah. Berkeley 
to study in the humanities. So talk about that. Did, did you know what you were going to, what was your major? And did you know what you were going to do with it when you graduated? Well, I think like a lot of people, I'm, I'm serially committed to stuff. I, I was very committed to becoming a director when I was in high school. In fact, I think in a lot of ways, the, the, the two butt rule comes out of this need to help working later in my career in, with scientists and innovation people. And we can talk all about that di- dialectic. Very much actors on stage and people behind the stage on sets and getting things done. The, the cultures couldn't be more different. One is how do we get things done and but that won't work, but let's not drop the actor from the rafters by rigging the fly rig wrong. And then actors have a very different culture. Getting those two groups of people to work together was probably one of my first feelings of great success when stage folks would come back and say, yeah, I had a great experience with this. And the actors would come back and say the same thing. And it wasn't wars between them. We got good work out of them. And went to Carnegie Mellon, which is one of the oldest theater school in the country. And all of my friends in the dorm that I was in were comp sci, a lot of them. In those days, this was the early days of pre-AI winter, artificial intelligence winter, where Carnegie Mellon was the hotbed of some of the earliest thinking. And what do you that mean by the winter, John, the AI winter. What does that mean? At some point, AI kind of fell out of favor. It was seen as something that wasn't working very well. Funding for it sort of dried up. Okay. Of course, now it's it's come roaring back. There were big arguments back in the 80s about whether we should teach computers that up is that way and up yours is a completely different thing, or whether we should just let little automata kind of figure out the world themselves. The latter seems to loosely be the way things have gone. If we try to teach computers this giant ontology of common sense, it becomes rigid and brittle and breaks apart and doesn't work. But we could do this other thing where we let computers just learn from massive amounts of mathified language, data inputs, and figure things out with vectors, as you might be hearing about a lot, right? That, that, uh, that these large language models are massive numbers of vectors that are just kind of coming up with things. It's very exciting. But if you put the two of them together, you get an even better idea. So when you were at Carnegie Mellon, you were exposed to all of these comp sci majors, is that where you got the aha that you needed to move to a different university? In those days, and this has changed quite a bit, you couldn't really cross departments too much at Carnegie Mellon. You could at Berkeley, so I went to Berkeley. And And what was your major there? A lot of stuff. Berkeley, you, you could get away with doing a lot of different things, and that's what I wanted to do. So my, I think, favorite semester I had Physical anthropology, neuroscience with Miriam Diamond, the great, and linguistics. And I thought I'd, I'd be clever and get away with writing the same term paper for all three classes. Encephalization, which is the increasing size of uh, hominid brains, human and precursors, brain sizes, and the linguistic ev- evolution, trying to draw this parallel between the size of human brains as they as we evolve and the rise of, of language and 
a little bit of linguistics, a little bit of neuroscience, a little bit of anthropology. And so, two of my professors thought that was brilliant, gave me A's. And the third one, the linguistics one, gave me a B and thought it was reprehensible that I should be so lazy as to write one paper for all three classes. What impact did that have on your post-grad life? The fact that you got a B from one professor? Oh, nothing. The, the B meant nothing at all. The experience of trying to join three radically different things together has been my entire career. Where did you find the courage to blaze your own trail in terms of your area of study, what you cobbled together to create, I guess, more like an independent study for your major? I don't know. I just didn't want to block myself off from very different things. My kids are the age where we play a lot of Legos. And it seems to me that whether you're doing language or theater, it's all Legos at the end of the day, right? You've got objects, you have conceptual objects, you've got stuff to play with, and you want to put it together in different ways. And I just like putting stuff together. And the, the more different the pieces that you put together, the more interesting it is to me. Did you, at that point, I think you graduated, was it around 89, 1989? Did you have any idea what you wanted to do with that cobbled together major when you graduated? Strangely enough, I started an advertising I had gone from the serial commitment to theater and the arts and to humanities. And then I was like, oh, no, I really want to get into advertising. I don't know why, but I got very excited about advertising. And I, and I got excited about it, I think, because it seemed to me that theater is creative, but the business of theater and the business of entertainment can be very not creative, as I'm sure you know. But the business of business, if you treat it creatively, can be very innovative and very creative. So I got interested in just starting a business. It just happened that I fell into that. So my journey was from that to business. Actually, I, I got into science and technology later. So when you were a senior at Berkeley, is that when you had the idea, oh, I think I want to go into advertising? How did that yeah. come about? I had a good okay. professor in, ad in, in advertising. He helped me start this business. Amazing. So. What other activities, if any, and I'm talking about clubs, sports, teams, volunteer work, part-time, full-time work, research assistant, anything that falls under the rubric of it wasn't in the classroom, were you involved in, John, while you were at Berkeley, that in hindsight, you realize you were actually honing skills that became useful to you when you got out of school. Being on the school newspaper probably helped a lot. Sometimes I was writing stuff, I think, but I mostly I was selling ads and doing that sort of thing. And I got into how that business was running, trying to run it as a business, but it was a school newspaper. I think that's where I got inter interested in how the Legos of different endeavors work. So how do you mash together a thing that has to make money with something that is trying to be public good? 
with all these different missions, all these different characters and personalities. And you've got the people in, in, the, in those days, it was pre-digital. So they were giant room full of, of layouts and people cutting, literally cutting typeset linotype, putting it onto these sheets. And that was the, the way we produced papers back then. You were always trying to figure out how it would work as a business. And you mentioned that your senior year did you take a class in advertising? Is that what happened? I had a professor at Haas at, at the business school at Berkeley, who uh, Trudy Carrot Ward, who was really encouraging. And funny, it's funny enough that, that this has actually impacted my career as a product person. I had to figure out whether or not this terrible cereal they gave us. I think Kellogg's was working on this, and they said, "Go figure out if this could sell." And I said, "Well, why don't we mock up the box?" And put it on actual supermarket shelves and hide somewhere and watch people and see if they would. We had different mock-ups of the box and we would hide and watch and see if they would, if anybody would even look at the box and then if they would pick it up. And then, of course, if they would try to put it in the shopping cart. And then we would quickly rush out and say, Oh, here's a coupon for something. Uh, it's a fake box, you know, that sort of thing. I thought that was kind of clever and, and we got real good data about what worked with that particular cereal and what didn't. And I use that, gosh, I use that lesson all the time these days. It's like the lean startup. That's the essence of the book, the lean startup that you also write consumer. That's right. In fact, there is a chapter in the two butt rule. It's actually a pretty interesting story. When I started what was originally called Cabulous with this team of crazy people from Best Buy, there was a, a guy named Daniel Garcia, who was a Geek Squad agent at Best Buy, double agent, that's what they called him, in Los Angeles. And I was running this program where if anybody could come up with a business idea, we'd give them 50 grand, team of three or four, and nine weeks to go prove the business. And he wanted to put Geek Squad cars on iPhones. This was in 2007. Geek Squad cars on early Google Maps so that you could see them coming to your house. And know when they were going to show up. But that idea turned out after we tested it wasn't that interesting in those days. But they all went out to a party and they all took their cars or something. And they, they came back complaining about how they could never catch a cab. And one of the teammates, Tal Flankridge, said, you know, what would be cabulous is if we did this for taxis. And that was the inception of the first cars in the map app that now, you know, everybody uses Uber and and Lyft, that was interesting. We did very lean startup approach to that. We went out on the street, we made a fake app, we showed it to people and said, hey, look, you see the cars driving around? It was completely fake. And we would see if people would pull out their phone and try to install it. We would count, did they have an iPhone? Did they want to install it, right? And we got all that data and we were very validated. We thought this was wonderful. And we did another experiment where I, in fact, I met my wife this way. Uh, we had a taxi driving coder. He was writing code and a taxi driver, pretty good person to have in a taxi hailing app company. And he said, you know, there's this donut shop everybody goes to, all the, all the taxi drivers. Why don't we go and tell them all and have them show up? And if they have an iPhone, we'll give a cup of coffee and a donut. And we were so validated that so many drivers had iPhones. So we were going to put the app on their own phones to save money. 
But it turns out that they all had the jail broken so that they could make phone calls in a certain way. And in those days, what is jailbroken? So jailbroken, thanks for asking, is you could jailbreak the phone to get it to do things that Apple didn't want you to do. And in doing that, they kind of circumvented a little thing that in those days, networks couldn't handle data and voice at the same time. So what you wind up with is suddenly everybody has the app and nobody's getting rides. Nobody can get to the drivers. There's no, there are no cars on the map and drivers are upset because they aren't getting calls because we miss some. So we did the lean startup process, but instead of going in looking for the butts, but that will work, but that will work. We went in getting excited about being validated on our initial assumptions. And that was a costly mistake. We got over it. But I think that's a great example of where the two butt rule applies is you want to lean into your butt. Okay. I'm not sure I am following how that works in its truest application because it sounds like you were validated when the taxi drivers all showed up for the donuts and the coffee and they had iPhones and they were open to working with you. Are you saying you should have spent more time thinking through what the reasons would be why it might not work before you actually went into testing? Before and during, but in this case, with the lean startup approach, the point is, yes, that we were so happy about being validated about that one assumption that we stopped getting curious about what else might be wrong, which we could have discovered when we were out there with them. We could have said, okay, well, what else might be wrong with this? Oh, well, jail- jailbreaking, like, what's going on with that? Or we'd gotten more curious with those drivers, we would have discovered they were jailbroken and might have seen that problem coming. And then we could have said, but we could solve that this way. Ultimately, Uber solved it by buying them all iPhones. And that was how they leapfrogged you in a way? I don't know if that's the right term. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of that stories in the book. It was an interesting experience getting clobbered by Uber. I remember I had lunch with the first CEO of Uber, who's a really great person named Ryan Graves, if I remember. And he was a very curious person. I mean, he really cu- was curious about the industry. He was interested in what was going on, what was wrong with ground transit and taxis. And I really liked him. One of the things that they wanted to know was, are you going to go into limos and black cars? And I was, I stupidly said, no, all the taxi drivers know where I literally know where I live. <laughs> and they would literally kill me. So no, we're not going into black cars and limos. And that's exactly where Uber started its rise. I mean, it wasn't in dude with a, with a Prius was a black car limo driver who was prohibited from picking passengers up off the street. So you had all these limo drivers sitting around in parking lots waiting for their dispatcher to call. They were had idle time and Uber very cleverly figured out that they could get away with putting those guys on their map. And now you have a limo showing reliably on time in a pretty nice car for slightly less than a limo, which was a whole different scene, right? We were just trying to help grandma get home from the Safeway and know where the car was on the way home. 
So what do you think the lesson learned is for our young listeners who may want to start their own business? If you are looking to solve a problem, and that's what the two-butt rule is, it's looking for solutions to problems, find the people who stand to gain the most. Find the people in terms of consumers or your target, whatever that is, who are suffering, who are in a challenging economic state or fill in the blank and seek to solve their problem. Who has the biggest problem and who would stand to gain the most? Yes. And in fact, I think the, the, the big lesson I got from, from Uber was pick your butts wisely, right? So Uber definitely knew how to pick its butt. They knew that the relatively affluent dude at a party trying to suggest my place or yours to somebody was not going to be served by having a taxi show up late or not at all with gum on the seat. That was an insanely great experience for somebody who could pay for an insanely great experience. And getting started that way is very powerful. And that's, that's a good business lesson to learn. On the other hand, they left the hardest job to the least funded group. And they were able to take advantage of a very good populist press by saying, oh, look at the, the evil city and the evil taxi fleet industry which is not very powerful, it turns out, uh, and fairly disorganized. But they were able to say, oh, they impounded this limo, us poor startup. And I'm like, you're funded by Benchmark. You're not poor startup. You're doing fine. And you could hire David Plough, who could do a lot of government work for you. Right? So I'm not sure I, I'm sympathetic to the, oh, poor Uber as a startup trope. However, the, the taxi industry made a big mistake. Their whole defense in these days was, those drivers aren't licensed. Our drivers are safe because they're licensed. I'm like, you've never seen taxi driver? I mean, it's not a very good argument. They're good guys and bad guys and and everything. What they should have said was, same job, same rules. My job is to pick you up, drop you off somewhere, and not murder you along the way. That's the job. Well, an Uber driver and a taxi driver are doing the same job. But one has to use a meter, can't charge what they want, can't do surge pricing, can't, they have to run vehicles that will do paratransit, handle your wheelchair, all of these things, lots of costly things. Uber could just do whatever they want. That would have been the right argument and the right way to deal with these regulatory arbitrage type businesses. I think people would have really understood that because it's, it's a matter of fairness. So... We went off on a little bit of a tangent and maybe we could rewind a bit back to 1989. You graduate from Berkeley with your hodgepodge humanities degree and you have decided you are going to start an advertising agency. How did that come to be and why did you decide to start a business versus what most students would do? go to work for an ad agency. Well, this was the 80s. This was the advertising depression. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't pay for somebody to hire you in advertising. So I thought, well, a whole bunch of people with no experience 
is a good conundrum problem, right? You know, you need experience to get a job in advertising, but nobody will give you a job to get experience. So we said, well, we'll start a student ad agency and we'll just undercut all the agencies. And this digital technology that was coming out allowed us to do really good spec work that looked fantastic and then sell business. So we started that. So you had other Berkeley grads who came to work with you or how did you assemble this group and how did you get Apple as your first client? I think it had to do with uh, the, the newspaper we were working with. And what was great is they, they gave us all, they paid us partly in, in Macs. We had a, an office full of really good Macintosh computers with pretty good graphic design software. So we were doing a lot of print advertising and billboards and that sort of thing. That's what got me into tech. More and more into the computers, stupidly decided that there was no good software for running an ad agency and it's accounting and it's ad placement. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll write it. So I hired a Lawrence Livermore lab scientist to teach me how to write code. And I have been paid to write code. I write code badly, which makes me a reasonably good product person because I can at least speak the language. So cool. So this is what influenced your next career trajectory, when did you decide that you wanted to get an MBA? Yeah. When we, we were winding down the ad business, it was kind of time to move on. And I started applying for business schools. I watched another podcast interview that you did recently. And you said that if you were a student today, you wouldn't start your post-grad career at a big company. Instead, you would do, in fact, what you did, which was to go to a startup, to smaller companies, let alone to start your own. Why do you think that is still great advice? Well, I don't think it was great advice years ago when I was doing it. It was very much the accepted pattern and it worked very well. You go to work for a, G, a GM or a GE or a Clorox or a Kraft or an IBM which is where I wound up after uh, business school, three-time ibm and, and I could go off on, on talking about IBM all day long. Yeah, IBM helped put a person on the moon. That's a moonshot. So people don't understand IBM to be an innovation R&D company, then they're, they're missing the point. IBM is the original innovation company. A lot of people talk about improvement and they'll use the word innovation. But IBM really knew how to fundamentally transform itself and shift its paradigm. IBM was where I went after uh, grad school. But before that, you started your own company. Yeah, so I had that cred. So I could right. get into startups later. Today, if you go to a large company and then you want to go to a small company or a startup, they're going to look at you and say, well, why do you think you can cut it in the startup world? But if you start in startups and go to a large company, they're all in, very interested but isn't there the potential um, yeah. that you bring best practices from the large company into these startups? I always think that that's a missing piece that is of value to a new company. That was the old thinking that, yeah, an IBM trained IBM manager would be able to bring that to your company. And there's certainly something to that. Being able to find a way to get things done in a company with hundreds of thousands of people is a special talent, a special set of skills. But in a startup, 
there are skills that you might have missed if you spent most of your career in that. Like what? Well, just being able to be a chief cook bottle washer and right? be able to switch back and forth. Fortunately, I got that experience and I do it maybe to a fault is, okay, this, there, there's a hole that needs to be plugged. Okay, I'll go over and take care of that. When you have very few resources, you've got to be able to move back and forth between different parts of the business. And if you spent your career in a large firm where you're more specialized, that instinct might have atrophy. Certainly doesn't atrophy for everybody. But again, you're going to have to explain yourself to a startup why, why they're going to be able to rely on you in that way. Got it. So you went to Georgetown, you got your MBA. And as you just mentioned, you then went to IBM and you worked there for three years and you left. Why did you Why? Three times. I left three times. Yeah, but the first time. Well, the first time, yeah, there was an opportunity with a really amazing innovation company and they read something and they offered me twice my salary to leave. And I'm like, oh, I like that. The company was a strategy innovation consulting firm that wanted to transcend that kind of business. And I had an idea for how to do something I was working on. It's a longer, longer story, but I, I think that the owner kind of liked the idea. We tried to raise a lot of money for it. And this was in the year 2000. And we were raising money for it. And what happened for our we had a term sheet? And then a week later, we didn't have a term sheet. Have been born. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was going on then? Well, Abby Cohn started selling her tech shares in April of 2000. And that was the dot bomb. And so we, we missed it by that much. So we didn't get funded. And then I got offered another job for a lot of money. And by the end of another startup that had made its, gotten its funding before then. But then that was hard. Investors started making that hard to spend because they felt, oops, (laughs) new climate change, economic climate had changed. So uh, I sent an email to a guy named Nick D'Onofrio, who was my mentor at IBM and top executive there. Wonderful, wonderful person. And I I just wrote prodigal at the top. I said, so Nick, it's been a fun year to be out of the company. Can I come home now? And within a half hour, this one of the warmest moments I've ever had in my life. He sent me a note back that, yes, my son, you may come home. I will fat the kids. And I loved that moment. And uh, I came back to IBM and worked on another innovation program called Extreme Blue, which was this huge, you know, multi-site incubation, new business concept and research and development uh, organization using young talent. So new hires uh, and interns to sort of be the sacrificial lambs on the altar of new ideas, which was a brilliant idea. It worked pretty well. We got, it was the most patented lab at the company for at least three years that I was there. Wow. Yeah. You know what I love about that story so much, John? I can relate to it deeply. The importance of learning how to swallow your pride. Something we don't talk about very much. I think there's... In so many industries, a lot of bravado, a lot of like, you never want to show your weakness. And you went back to this super important executive at IBM and swallowed hard and asked to get hired back after you had left. 
honestly, I think that is one of the best lessons that any young person can learn early on. Never burn bridges and learn how to swallow your pride when appropriate. Because look at the opportunity that it not only afforded you, but also IBM. People learn lessons and unlearn, unlearn them. I've certainly burned bridges. <laughs> and later in my career, like you learn a lesson like that and then you unlearn it and then you learn it again. And also there are times to burn bridges when, uh, when you have a principled argument. For example, with blockchain, I cannot in good conscience be part, I'll say it, a Ponzi scheme uh, token coin thing. And we tried many, many, many things that you could use blockchain for that wasn't cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency, by the way, is very slow too. And is, it turns out is not very good at being what the original cryptocurrency Satoshi Nakamoto paper claimed, which was digital cash. It's not digital cash. And it's an interesting problem with crypto is that you have on one hand, you, you have a lot of people trying to avoid oversight, right? Trying to move large fistfuls of pseudo money across borders without having to deal with governments that don't like you doing that. At the same time, I would advise not trying to buy a pregnancy kit with crypto in Texas because a permanent public ledger in the age of AI, I'm going to make you, I'm going to find you and I'm going to sell you out to Greg Abbott, right? So I'm, there, are, there are real privacy problems. If you want not to have a paper trail, use paper. On one hand, you have people trying to get away from oversight who are putting transactions on a ledger that is permanently and publicly available that have only the lightest of obfuscation and hoping that nobody's going to come knocking at their door. Well, it turns out we're seeing today. Yeah, I'm going to find you eventually, if, especially if you commit a big enough crime. So don't do crimes on blockchains. So I, I have completely burned my bridges with blockchain and with crypto because on principle, I don't very much like the practice and I don't like making claims about technology after we've shown that there are limitations, glossing over those limitations in the interest of keeping our bags full. So could you just maybe rewind for a moment and explain for those of us, I'm raising my hand, who may not fully appreciate what blockchain proclaimed it was there to do and how crypto f fit into that? For a long time, being able to transcend rigid and authoritarian control system. As a journalist, you don't want a government that might not be nice to you being able to track you. There are real reasons why you want to have something that's some, a regime that's more decentralized and that is beyond any particular government or any particular control service. And the, the web actually is that to a large degree. I mean, the, the internet is very, very decentralized. If you put up your own web page or web server, you have the ability to control your own information. Problem is nobody's going to come to you because they don't know who you are. So what do you do? You go to Twitter, you go to Facebook, you go to these places where you can aggregate eyeballs. That's not about technology. That's about humans. And the fact that you got to be found, you got to be noticed. So you're going to be on this other person's server who has found a way to accumulate lots of other people who are looking at the same. So it was no different than why Venice became an important hub in commerce. It was because everybody was showing up there. 
crossroads are real. And this notion that the web was somehow not so decentralized and, and that web three is the word that we're using these days is the true culmination of this notion of decentralization and, and individual control. It's not. In fact, the ironic thing is we are delivering a frightening, terrifying level of centralization with this blockchain web three thing that under the covers, the people that are behind that, not just Sam Bankman-Fried, there are dozens more with that game who are controlling the, the levers and manipulating markets and wash trading and doing all horrible things. All in the name of decentralization. I find that hypocritical and awful. I'm not a fan anymore. But I kept it going for almost a decade and worked really hard on all sorts of different ways. We started with private blockchains and figured out why that didn't work. And then I moved on to public blockchains and figured out why that didn't work. But this doesn't work, but it would have. But this didn't work, but it would have. And ultimately, I still have one final second but on blockchain, which is it funded a lot of cryptography research. And we've come up with some very interesting cryptographic techniques like zero-knowledge cryptography that are going to be hugely important in personal digital identity and being able to prove things about your information without revealing that information to somebody. These are really powerful ideas, but I would not recommend any new person getting involved with crypto or blockchain if they're really interested in academic honesty. Okay. So I guess this is probably as good a time as any to bring in officially the two, but rule, turn negative thinking into positive solutions. How does the two, but rule work? Like a lot of things, the premise of the two-butt rule is pretty simple. Saying half the people are stuck in their own butts and the other half are afraid of their own butts and running away from them. Think about how hard it is to run away from your own butt. I mean, that takes commitment. We've gotten this culture of toxic positivity where we feel very uncomfortable about saying, but that won't work to anybody else. Imagine a world where we had a two-butt rule, where we said, where everybody that said, hears you say, but that won't work or, but I don't like that or, but we can't afford that or, but I, but you're a big dumb poopy head, right? But you said, but I would like it or, but you wouldn't be a big dumb poopy head if, you know, and we all were a condition to expect that second positive, but you go from the negative to the positive and that way you're not ignoring or hiding from what are sometimes very obvious problems with a plan or with an idea or with an intention. And that, that word intention, I think, is the, the word that really is the crux of the entire book. There's innovation, there's improvement, there's lots of I, I words in innovation. What do I intend to do? What are the gaps between what I can do and what I want to do? And why do I intend to do that? If I understand why you want something, understanding what somebody wants is never as interesting as understanding why they want it in a product. If I understand why you want something, I can then honor your intention, honor my own objection to that intention, and then try to square it and say, well, we could do this. And that would make what you want to do, what's behind what you want to do, and what I don't like about that, sync up. And so on and so on. In my experience in, in research labs, if you do that with people that know what they're talking about five times, you get a you get a pretty good thing, like a patent or something to work on almost every time. 
it's a great way to brainstorm. It is. It's much better than what people do, I think, today with brainstorming. And you say, um, no killer phrases. You know, there aren't any bad ideas. The phrase, there aren't any bad ideas, is a very bad idea. I'm sorry. There are bad ideas, and we should love them because they're the starting of a journey. Yes, you have to be feel safe to express your idea and formulate that idea. But if, if you're doing that in an environment where somebody also feels safe to say, you missed a trick, you missed a point, I don't like that, or can't afford that. Well, we could afford it if we did it this way. Then you get somewhere. So a one-butt culture will kill momentum. A no-butts culture will kill momentum. A two-butts culture will maintain momentum. There's a chapter in the book called Elon Musk's Fuzzy Right, where he ran right into a brick wall. He couldn't figure out how to make something affordable and work. And he said, well, but it would work if we had a machine that turned atoms into rockets. Well, it turns out he had that. Even a silly butt will get you somewhere. I was at, at IBM and years ago that we were in a, a lab and somebody said, hey, what if we did this? And an engineer said, but that won't work. And I said, but it would if... And he looked up at the ceiling and went, it would work if gravity was different. And sure enough, five seconds later, another engineer went, wait a minute. And they came up with this amazing project, got in front of the CEO. It was a really successful thing. So obviously, they didn't change gravity. But the context and that momentum of thinking differently about the problem got them to a new place. That's what the two-butt rule is all about. Can you give us an example, John, of how a new grad could put the two-butt rule into action in a big meeting? Because that's often very intimidating to push back on somebody who's more senior than you as a 23-year-old, 24-year-old without feeling that all eyes are on you and you're going to be seen as the naysayer. Right. Yeah. Amy Edmondson at Harvard has a wonderful book out, Fearless Organizations. And she's the one originators of the notion of uh, psychological safety, which is often misunderstood. You'll have people criticize that as bringing up these weak people that can't handle pushback. It's not how I read her work. I, I think she's saying something different. But a two-butt rule world would help a lot in that situation. I wrote it with humor. And I called it the two-butt rule, not momentum thinking and problem solving and innovation, because it's a culture change requirement. We need a culture of two-butts so that when you push back or when you are put, being pushed back upon, you can go, hey, show me your butts, which is a lot more fun than saying it some other way. And if we can have fun in that experience and not get defensive or get mean-spirited about it, then we can solve problems and explore ideas and intentions more deeply than we are often doing today in every aspect of society from Congress to to the Thanksgiving dinner table. What about this? If maybe if because it is so hard at such a young age to be the naysayer, be the one who's raising the second butt. Right. What if? And come to your supervisor, come to the group meeting as the solution finder. 
in groups that I run where I'm helping companies do this or, uh, or I'm running a department that, that is doing this sort of thing, I'll, I put down that rule. Anybody can say, but it won't work, but they have to bring another but. It's very hard to do that if you haven't thought real hard about what the, the intenders, the person with the intention, what their motives were. Your butt will be exposed. It won't be a good butt. It kind of prompts people to think more deeply about each other's intentions, and that gets you somewhere. Ideally, it's best if you bring up two butts to the table. But if there's nothing wrong with somebody else going, what it would work if. So you can still do that too. Yeah. It's a team effort. As you think back on your 30 years in advertising and in various manifestations of tech and blockchain, crypto, all of that. How has your background, your educational background, prior to you getting an MBA, studying anthropology and linguistics and neuroscience? Math. Got some math in me. How (laughs) have those, how did that cross-disciplinary educational background as an undergrad serve you over the last 30 years? Well, it's really hard to come up with a good second, but unless you have a lot of Legos to play with, because if you have very limited experience in a, in a narrow range, then it's very hard to see the way out of what seems like a conundrum. Blockchain and crypto, I would say, and, and anything that is trying to do regulatory arbitrage, they're breaking the rules, willfully breaking the rules. I'm not a big rule breaker, but I, I do like to change the rules. And I do like to find a different game, right? So you'd say, well, I'm not playing that game. I'm playing a different game. What is that's the a, distinction that's a great way of doing that. between breaking the rules versus making new rules? Well, a good example of making new rules is we could, we could have done the hard work of saying there's some basic problems in the, in the taxi industry. And instead of simply finding a way to let people break out of those rules and still leave the tab with, with the taxi drivers to carry the burden of getting grandma home from the, from the supermarket, we could have said, but maybe what we should do is start changing the way we look at metering. And there's all sorts of interesting ways that you could make sure that grandma still has an affordable and the paratransit still picks you up and you still have more choice and you can still see your cars and your drivers showing up. But did we really need to go to surge pricing and flooding our streets due to the Prius? Did we have to play that rough? Well, maybe, maybe we did. It was a pretty rough industry. But I think that if we'd thought deeper and embraced our butts, we might have found something that's more sustainable. I mean, as we are seeing, a lot of these gig economy companies are cratering. Airbnb's got trouble. Uber rarely has ever turned a profit. WeWork just filed for bankruptcy. These are all gig economy type businesses that are running aground now because the laws of physics didn't change. What they did was they avoided regulation. So I try to ask all T4C guests these final three questions, John. The first one is if you could share a time in your life, and I 
think you've already touched on a few. When you experienced what most people would call serendipity, incredible luck, whether it was a chance encounter or experience, I like to call it magic because sometimes it is fairy dust and other times it's black magic that led you or pushed you in a direction that you weren't expecting. I mentioned earlier, there was a guy named Nick Tanafri who got me back to IBM the second time. Years later, or a couple of years later, I had the privilege of being able to show up a few times a year and hang out with him. And he had a clock speed that was amazing. I mean, he could do a three hour meeting in 20 minutes with you, you know, just sitting there. And he said, look, you're into game theory stuff, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, here's my problem. We probably have warp drive sitting on the floor in research at IBM here. We have like part one of warp drive and there's any number of other companies have part two and three, but without seeing all three mean? pieces. I'm so sorry. What is warp, warp drive? drive? Some new science. We don't even know that what we have and they don't either. And if we could only see, have omniscience across these company lines or these organizational lines, we'd be able to do amazing things. But we have real reasons why we can't share that information. But see what you can do with that. I went away for a year and I wrote a paper in Harvard Business Review about how to solve that problem and wound up getting the Australian government and the UK government involved in this R&D consortium where we would hire people with very broad minds, very smart people, often like retirees or recent retirees. We put them back in these labs under this government NGO that said, basically, you, you can't own anything you come up with. You can't do anything with what you know, but you can share everything you see with every other person like this. We call them intermediaries on the condition that none of you ever tell anyone else. And so this was my second but, right? But we can't share, but we could kind of share if we had these intermediaries stuck down in the research labs and were able to share stuff with each other. And that turned into... Last I checked, somebody told me it was half a billion dollars in new deal flow between companies that would never have thought to work with each other. Like a material science company that was solving a problem in pharma that they never would have expected. And we were able to step these organizations into relationships with each other very carefully, always looking for win-wins. If we ever saw that it would be a win-lose, our responsibility was to never tell either of them. So that was fascinating. And in fact, it's been a big part of my career ever since. I'm fascinated with the we need to share but can't share problem. It's a big but problem. You have to bring the second but. It's the true share economy. Yeah. So I only wish that we had AI and, and some of this zero knowledge uh, cryptography technology back then because we could have been much more efficient. The problem with that idea is it didn't scale because after you get to you know some number of intermediaries, the trust issues reassert themselves. You're wondering if the next person coming in is going to blow it for you all. There are issues. But if we could have a way to find connections between different data sets without exposing those data sets to each other, we can do that now with, with really cool cryptographic techniques and with AI. Imagine what we could be finding between these separate, legally separate organizations. Is there a new business in there somewhere, John? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Buy my book and find out. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Could you share a time in your professional journey thus far? And I know this is no knock against you. You've had tremendous success and you've also had stumbles along the way. Pick one where you feel that it was maybe a spectacular fail and how you persevered through that fail and more importantly, what the lesson was that you learned in the process. And, and you've already perhaps outlined one of them with flywheel, but please choose whatever you think is the best example. Oh, so many. I didn't write that book because I am the Harold Keister chair of tubotology at Harvard. I have applied to the position, but I'm no expert in avoiding. I've been every kind of, I've been stuck in my own one butt. I have been afraid of my two butts. I've done it wrong every way you can do it wrong. And that's kind of why I wrote the book was to not only help other people, but also remind myself how I should be living my life for the rest of my life. And I can tell you that most of the time where I have failed, I ran out of butts. I ran out of the energy or the will or the interest to say, but I, well, we could still solve that problem this another way. That was a big lesson. That you gave up too soon? I have a friend who never gives up. They work on startups and they, they just ride them all the way into the crater. And I'm the opposite. Yeah, I think that was a big mistake more than one occasion where I, I'm not really a competitor type person. I'm more of an explorer type person. I don't get toothy about saying, hey, in fact, I walked into a board meeting once as a CEO and said, hey, we got to get rid of that Wolper guy. Because I was like, you know, we need to raise $50 million. And I don't think I'm the person that can pull that off at my stage in the career. Let's find somebody who can. Was that a mistake? I don't know. Unfortunate thing about this particular reality is you can't play it over a couple of times and see which one was the right way to go. Wow. That's a new level of modesty, John. That's a new level of self-deprecation. And I don't know that it's a very good one for a CEO to have. In fact, I, I often tell people who are CEOs, I don't ever want that job again. That's a hard job. My dad used to say, you know, the higher you go in an organization, the more people you serve. That's the only thing you need to know about it. And at the top, you serve everybody. Everybody is your boss. And it's hard. And it takes a certain kind of personality. I'm just, I like to explore stuff. I'm a creative. To be a CEO, that's a, that's a bag of tricks that I can play one on TV, but. And you've done it. Yeah. You did it. You, you did it in real life. You were a CEO. You had, I think by most people's measure, a lot of success. And you moved on. You moved to other challenges. And I think that's the beautiful thing about our journeys is that we can make it whatever we want, whatever is true to who we are. We're not all carbon copies. So you are someone who learned through the doing that it really wasn't where the joy was for you. It really wasn't what lit you up, what got you up in the morning. Like check the box, did it, tried it. Now I'm on to something new. Maybe you could say, but. I've also discovered you gotta find that, your butt. that I am a creative at my root and this is what I want to do. So final question, if you could go back to Berkeley 
and do it all over again, but based on the immense wisdom that you have right now, as you put it in another interview, if you could give your college self a phone call, what advice would you give yourself, John? Oh, well, I know the answer to this. I'll tell you there's a story. I went to Georgetown for my MBA, as you said. So grad school was at Georgetown. Perfectly good school. Nothing wrong with that. But I really wanted to go to MIT. And I wrote a very good essay to MIT about how I wasn't a quant. I had, I think, a nearly perfect score on my GMAT's verbal side, but I, I was okay on the math side. Knowing that I had that weakness, I, I wrote this essay saying, I'm better than a quant. I'm a wannabe quant. I'm more interested in this stuff because I'm coming to it late. And I was. I'm really interested in linear programming, systems modeling, and all this kind of stuff. And MIT was really good at that. So I really wanted to get an MIT. Thinking back on it, if I had to do it all over again on my undergrad, I would do more engineering and pepper in the, the liberal arts and humanities because it's very hard. It's been a lifelong process to acquire the technical skills to not be dangerous with your ideas. There's a, I like to say in software, Every line of code is business decision and every business decision that doesn't understand the code risks being a bad one. Well, that's a terribly great burden for a product person in software because that means you have to understand all this code. And I work very hard to do that. But without that engineering degree and undergrad, I had to pick up a whole lot of, of fundamentals on the other hand, because I picked them up and was diligent about it over my whole career, maybe I learned it better or in, at least in a different way than somebody else. Or maybe I might have gotten over it and been like, well, I've done that, not interested anymore. Whenever I hear somebody saying that they're not technical, what I hear is you're not interested because it's just Legos. You're just not interested in these Legos. apparently. Yeah, that's me. I'm not technical. I am more of a creative. But you could that, be. The point is, if you were interested, you could be legitimate. You're there's right. nothing stopping. I it's think just you're that right. you choose not to be interested in that and there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah. I think there's so many other things that have captured my imagination that I prefer to move in that direction. John's book is called The Two Butts Rule. Not the three butts. It's two butts. Turn negative thinking into positive solutions. You can pre-order it now. It is due out on January 24th, 2024. John, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I learned a tremendous amount and just am so grateful to you for, for making the time to talk today. Thanks so much. It's been such a great time. I love talking to you. I really enjoyed the podcast. So good luck on all, all of that. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. 
And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.